Bienvenidos to Merendiando. Our guest today is Dainty Smith. Dainty Smith is a Toronto-based actor, burlesque performer, playwright, producer, and speaker. She's the founder of Les Femmes Fatales, the first burlesque troupe for women of color in Canada. She's also the co-creator of the Body Love program and the upcoming Push-Pull project. In this interview, we talked about what burlesque means to her, how there are many ways of being sexy, her passion for telling the stories of complicated women, and the power of tenderness. Let's get into the conversation. Thank you both so much for having me. We're so excited. I love because you do so many things. Like we literally just read the first line of, of your bio and it's like actor, burlesque performers, playwright, producer, speaker. How did that all started? Like what was when you were um, a kid, what was the creative inspirations behind the Smith? I, I would say the best way to answer that is that I have always been obsessed with stories and storytelling. And so I think it was a natural trans, um, transition for me because I grew up in the church. My father is a pastor and I used to like, you know, I used to see my father preaching at the podium, you know, very, very seriously, hellfire and brimstone. Oh, shoot. Um, and, you know, um, my, my family, we're Jamaican, we're Caribbean. And so I think that storytelling is, is naturally in our blood and in our spirits. And so for me, it's just, I think it's, it's the thing that one of the few things that's always made sense. And so I've really just been spending my life finding ways to tell stories in as many different ways as possible. I grew up in a very small sort of working class um, neighborhood and environment and that was predominantly white and I knew that I, w I wanted to be a storyteller and an artist and, and that would mean a bigger pond to swim in so I knew I would have to go to Toronto and, and either stay there or or go somewhere else. Totally and one of the main things that you do here one of the main crafts is burlesque. So for our listeners out there who maybe aren't familiar with burlesque what is burlesque to you? Oh, I love that. What is burlesque to me? Yeah. I have always seen burlesque as political and radical and sensual, feminine, feminist, and defiant and unruly. That's that's always been my understanding of what the art form of burlesque is. And, and I think if you look back on it, it's been around since the 16th or 17th century. It's always been really something that goes against the grain, really. But for me, that's what burlesque is and has always been. How did you found burlesque? I found burlesque through Josephine Baker. She was my my portal and my doorway into that world. And when I discovered Josephine Baker, it sort of gave me permission to be unruly and misbehaving, um, to be not a quote unquote good black woman. Like it allowed me to have a say and autonomy over my own sexuality. So discovering Bert Josephine Baker really was a profound moment in my life. It really impacted who I was at that time and, and how the course of my life. It gave me permission to choose a life of my own. But yeah, I also just want to say for me, burlesque is it's dance. Just in case any of the listeners are listening, they're like, I still don't get it. What is it? Mm -hmm. You know, you can you can consider burlesque to be the pussycat dolls because when, when you say burlesque, people think, oh, it's the pussycat dolls, or they think it's that movie with Cher, or oh yes. Yeah, they think it's that movie with Cher, or they imagine it's, you know, just very pretty girls on stage doing can can and high kicks and wearing pasties, and, yeah. and that's it. 
And I think if, if someone hears burlesque and that's what comes to mind, that's okay. But it's just, it's not all that burlesque is. So that's what I would say. Burlesque is dance, it's movement, it's, it's seduction, it's um, a heightened femininity, an intentional femininity on stage, but it's also storytelling, performance, and political and radical. Yeah, you definitely harness the political aspects of it in your femme fatale shows, which I really love. So the femme fatales, for people who don't know, is the first burlesque troupe for women of color in Canada. And Dainty is one of the founders? Is that I am the founder. I found the founder, uh-huh. yes. And your shows are just so beautiful. Um, they really mix... Uh, narrative storytelling and dance and burlesque together. So how is your creation process for these shows? I think my my creation process is I approach burlesque um, as a writer and as a storyteller. And I think because of that, then I'm always visioning a a burlesque show and our burlesque shows to be something that's part burlesque, part theater, part even cinematic and a film, really. Um, That's how I approach it. And so I'm really interested in giving these showgirls and showboys and show ponies uh, a story to play with and to work with. I think it would be easy to to consume a burlesque performer and a showgirl. It, it's very easy to do that because it's just a pretty person on stage and you're mm-hmm. there to be entertained. And so I really like to give a kind of weight to the shows. Mm-hmm. And so that's what our 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 audience over the over the course of the past decade have really gotten used to. I think people know when they come to one of our shows that they're coming to a full experience and they are coming to a burlesque show, but they're also coming to a theater show. They're coming to something where there's an entire narrative. So I like to, all of our shows have themes, all of our shows have themes. And then over the past few years, what I started doing was not only do the shows have a theme, but they they appear in a trilogy. And so uh, the audience gets used to this idea that they're coming for part one, then they come for part two, and they come for part three, and there's a full completion. And that's how I like to. I like to dream up and vision what's happening in the world, what's going on politically or culturally, or or just what do I want to say? Or sometimes I'll check in with the, the troupe and ask, what are we thinking about these days? Or you know, do you have any thoughts or feelings about what's happening in the world or has your heart been broken recently or what's happening (laughs) for all of us? And then I dream up and vision our shows. Like, it just makes me so nostalgic for like when I could go see them. Uh, When my sister came, my sister lives in Texas right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) When when she came to visit me, uh, I took her to see uh, one of your shows, like a little femme fatale show. And it was her first experience ever watching burlesque. Oh, wow. And that for me was like, that's great. Because as you've been saying, like more people saying like burlesque, like that movie with Sharon, Christina Aguilera. And I was like, <laughs> no, this is this is going to be your first experience? It's going to be like the best experience. And she was like blown away. But I think because it happened to me too, is like uh, we also grew up really Catholic and in Mexico. And I think seeing uh, people rec- like claiming their bodies of like we can be sexy and and beautiful and also tell you a message it's like so empowering like the whole act for me since I discovered burlesque when I moved here I was like I want to cheer for you I want to be you I want to learn from you like it's such a, an experience 
Yeah. I appreciate that. We we've definitely we've had people come to our shows that burst into tears, people that cry, people have called our shows going to church. They're like, I'm going to church. <laughs> yeah. I'm okay with that. I think that it's an intimate experience actually, and it's okay for it to be intimate. It's okay for it to be intimate both for the performer and for the audience member. Um, we're in it together. And I I, I think that's a beautiful thing. So I, I, I always appreciate when people are like, I, I wasn't expecting to feel like this at a cabaret show. That's not what I thought I was getting, but I'm so glad I did. I'm like, okay, good. It's, you know, it's, it just means that we're connecting to each other. And I, and I think that's important. And what I've seen in the femme fatale performances too, is that like your body can be exposed, but it's not just sexual. It complicates like intimacy for me in a way that I really love. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's also empowering. It's provocative in, in many different ways. It can be like titillating and exciting, but also like scary. And you can hold all those things at the same time and, and watch it. And someone can like show, lead you down this storytelling path of things being complicated, of dealing with big, big ideas. And yes. then at the end of it, there's like a huge release and like everyone's screaming. It's so fun. Yeah. I've had people ask me because over the years I started crafting the finales. And so the finales have started becoming really integral to the show where we, we always do a kind of, um, a theatrical finale and there's always this this spiritual powerful thing but it, it's because one of the things i realized when you do something you you're, you're hopefully learning how to get better at it one of the things i realized is that i was asking people to be vulnerable with me and i was leading people down a particular you know down the rabbit hole really um and they were trusting me with their with their emotions and their body their length of time you know because it's two hours and so i i realized that i needed Needed to have a release at the end of the shows where people, the audience felt good, the the performers felt good, that we had essentially conjured something and, and that when we have the finale, we needed to release it back into the, into the universe. And so that's mm. become a huge part of the show as well. And you perform sometimes and also produce this and that's, that's so much responsibility. So for someone who maybe is a woman of color or a femme of color, and is looking to produce their own project. Do you have any advice for that person? I would say do it. And, <laughs> and, um, and you, you know, have the entitlement of a straight white man. Just do it. And then you can fail anyway or fail up or fail better. But the only way you get good at anything is to actually just do it. And, and another thing I would say is, something that we say when we teach our classes. I, I, I've been teaching body love with Raven Wings, who's a frequent collaborator of mine and an incredible artist in her own right. And when we taught our classes, the thing, one of the things that we always say is, assume that you're great and then start from there. And it's, it's such an interesting thing. Like you can see this, like sometimes when we say that to people and we say that to our, our participants, it's like the first time that person has ever been told something like that in their life, which I think is beautiful and, and a little bit sad because we should all be told that far more than we are. Yeah. So I would say that to any black woman or woman of color who's doing, a, doing work and starting, you just have to start. None of it has to be perfect. You don't have to be an expert at it. You just have to start and, and have a kind of self-belief where you believe that you're good and that you're just going to get better. You believe that you're great and then you're just going to get better. 
And that's as good a place to start as any. It's so strange how that's so simple, but so powerful. Like something about that feels so obvious, but hearing it from you is like, oh yeah, like, (laughs) I don't know. It's good to be reminded of that. Every time you have doubts, just go back to this episode. I will. And listen and listen to it. Uh, Talking about body love, how does this program came to be? So this program came to be because I am a an intuitive person and I'm I'm a spiritually led person, um, or you could call it an overthinker, an overdreamer. I would say I'm probably all of those things. Um, a slightly too serious woman. The seed of body loves came from a dream. I had a dream about five years ago. Yes. <laughs> yes, I was in my old apartment and. My all I remember from the dream is someone talking to me and the the voice in the dream, like there was a whole swirl of things happening in the dream and it was like chaos or whatever. And then there was this voice and the voice said, you should start a dance program. Are you serious? <laughs> is this real? It was like, you need to start a dance program and you should do it with Raven. And I woke up and I was like, that's a good idea. <laughs> And I literally called while the idea was fresh in my mind. I think I called her. I, I, I don't think I emailed her. I think I called her first. Like I was like, oh my God, oh my God, I just had this great idea. Um, and I think she was on vacation or something. And I left this like, you know, rambling eat voice message. <laughs> I've had a dream. We need to do this. We need to do this. And she was like, what? What? And then I, I think I like sent her text messages and emails, but essentially I got it through. I got through to her saying, I've, I've had an idea. I think we should do this thing. And then uh, I'm just thankful that she trusted me to just say yes. <laughs> she was like, mm-hmm. you know what? I like it. Let's do it. And I think part of that is because Raven herself has always believed in breaking down the divides and the categories of what is fine art or what is good art. And she's always believed in access and opportunity being given to everyone. Um, Raven is a classically trained ballet dancer and went to dance school. And I think she was always frustrated with you know, who gets to be in those rooms and who gets to be in those spaces. And so I think that it was just a perfect, one of those divine or things that happen in in the universe where everything happens in alignment because as soon as I came to her she was like this makes sense this works for me in terms of the things that I believe in as well so we from there we just went on and we got together and built it and then we we um we approached the 519 and and ran it through them for about five years yeah amazing okay so for people This is what the Body Love Program is. It's a series of movement workshops centered on empowering community choices and building a deep sense of self and confidence. What has it been for you, Dainty, to run this program? I think I became a better teacher and a better burlesque performer, to be honest with you, um, by teaching for five years, by teaching the Body Love Program with Raven. Um, I also, I think I became re-inspired by the art form of burlesque because I, I... got to see raw, un, unedited, uncensored burlesque for five years. I got to see people who were never told that they were beautiful or sexy. Um, some of the best burlesque, I've said this before, some of the best burlesque I've ever seen is the the, the shy wallflower girl who comes in on the first day of workshop because the, the workshops are about two months. And she comes in and she's super quiet. And she's like, hello, I've never done this before. And I'm like, that's okay. It's going to be great. Um, and then, you know, on 
on presentation day on the last day of the workshop, she puts together this incredible, incredible, just mind-blowing, sensual, empowering burlesque performance. And it, 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 it always chokes me up. It always sort of blows me away because, yes, I've said this a couple of times you know, there's the Toronto Burlesque Festival, there's the Burlesque Hall of Fame, which I think is based in Las Vegas. You, you get to see some of the best dancers in the world. You get to see people from like internationally. Mm-hmm. And so that's always incredible and amazing to see people at the top of their game. But in teaching body love, what I learned is that, you know, all anybody needs to be the best or to be great is to have someone say, you're allowed to be. And so when we started teaching that class, we realized that there's a lot of talented dancers who've just never been up on a stage before. I've seen very shy boys and shy girls and folks who identify in between. I've seen people who are like, oh, I've been doing it for a couple of years, but I want to like get re in touch with my craft and so at any point in their in their journey, I've, we've had beginners, we've had people who who are pros, who take the class and they refine something within themselves. I think it's because we we give people space to be vulnerable and to feel safe and to explore, and that there is no failing. You're not going to fail. You're an artist. You're already a great storyteller. You can just you can just tell your story. And so it's been really beautiful to see people perform. I think it taught me a lot about giving someone permission to be great, giving mm-hmm. someone permission to, to believe in themselves, giving someone permission to think that they're beautiful, to think that they're desirable or they're sexy and not in comparison to, mm. you know, and that's always been important too, is that we have never expected our participants to be sexy in comparison to Beyonce or in comparison to Rihanna, both of whom are amazing women, but it's always been important that we, instill or advise advise or suggest to folks that they that person themselves the person that's looking back at them in the mirror is the most beautiful the most sexy the most smart the most intelligent the most incredible dancer just as they are that you don't need to you know do a thousand sit-ups and you know have have a particular body or shape or aesthetic that your hair doesn't have to be blonde that or if your hair is blonde it's beautiful it's really about how do we encourage folks to embrace themselves and see themselves as the most sensual and the most sacred and the most beautiful and that's been really lovely and what do you think changes when people do embrace that idea what happens is that people are allowed to blossom and they are allowed to bloom. That's what happens. It sounds almost cliched or a little bit um, silly, but it's like a butterfly, really. It's like someone coming out of their shell, you know, over the course of two months, you get to see someone embrace themselves. And it, it's a beautiful transformation. And really, it, it's just reminding people that they are already powerful. They are already sexy. They're already an artist. Um, but in my experience, that's what it's been like to to spend time and, sh- and share space with folks and create with folks is I'm just there and Raven is, is just there to say, you're already great. You're already beautiful. I keep hearing the word like sexy, sexy. And I remember for me, sexy was like, sexy is just this way. Yeah. And then I remember when I started watching burlesque shows, I'm like, sexy can be so funny. Sexy can be scary, like scary, like horror Halloween. Sexy can be like sad. Because I always felt like I am confident, but I never felt sexy. Because I think Mm. they Mm -hmm. sometimes for me, they didn't go hand in hand. 
Yes. Um, but watching more burlesque shows is like sexy is like you can be sexy in many ways. Absolutely. One of the biggest misconceptions about that art practice is sexy only has to look one way and then and that that one way has to be perfect you know, perfect, perfect, perfect. It has to look a particular way, move a particular way. And there are no, um, uh, there's no moving away from that. That's not true. It's never been true actually. And another thing is I, I'm always trying to remind people that comedy is a huge part of burlesque. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the root word of burlesque is burla and it means a joke. So comedy has always been a huge part of burlesque. And I, I think because people are imagining a very sultry and sexy and serious sort mm -hmm. of Jessica Rabbit's, you know, femme fatale, which is also great, also wonderful. Yeah. And they don't realize that actually it's just whatever you say it is. It's just whatever you say it is. And something I, I always say when I teach workshops and, and teach them with, with Raven Wings or, with my, or by myself is all a seduction is, is getting someone's attention. That is it. So you can decide what your version of seduction is. You can decide what your version of glamour is. You can decide what your version of sexy is because it literally just has to mean that you are getting another person's attention. And so mm. does that mean that you're serious? Does it mean that you're sad? Does it mean that you're dramatic? You know what I mean? It's, it, it's, it's literally any of those things. Um, and that's one of the biggest hurdles, I suppose, is that really when I start classes or start conversations, even with people, I, I definitely have to sort of break down that uh, barrier because most people picture that it has to look that one way and that you, you can't be sexy or, or be interesting if you're not, you know, anything else or that if you're, can you be sexy and be funny at the same time? Is that allowed? Um, but absolutely you can. It's a huge, comedy is a huge part of, of seduction. And uh, yeah. of the art form of burlesque, actually. Monica, oh. the gear and Monica's yeah. eyes. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. It always has been. I, so th there, there are burlesque classics that have been happening since the 1920s. Um, one of them is the fan dance where the, the, the showgirl has two right. giant ostrich feather fans. And it's basically just a peep show. She's just walking around the stage. And she's like, now you see it, now you don't. Oh, I dropped mm -hmm. it. Oh, no, I didn't. Oh, there's my bomb. Oh, now it's gone. There's another version of that where it's the balloon dance. And so the dancer comes out and she's covered in balloons. Sometimes she has elbow length gloves and she has her bedazzled costume bra and panty set underneath, but she's covered from head to toe. Like she kind of looks like a grape or something like yeah, she's yeah, covered yeah. With, with balloons. And then she sort of dances elegantly or sometimes silly because she's incorporating comedy into the, into the performance across the stage. And then one by one, she pops the balloon one by one. And the audience is always like, Oh, Oh, oh no. Ah, because, you know, because you're, she's using the element of surprise. She's using comedy, oh, yeah. she's using seduction. And so again, comedy is a huge part of, of that art form. It always has been. So we need to get the good word of burlesque out to the world. It's very important. Mm -hmm. And thank you for being on this podcast. But one way that you're trying to do this is also an upcoming like gathering, the Push-Pull Conference. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So the Push-Pull 
art project is an idea that was actually dreamt up by performance artist and visual artist Golbu Amani. And she approached me last year. She took my body love class, I think twice. And her, her sister is also a burlesque performer as well. Um, and she's been to a couple of the femme fatale shows and she had approached me in 2019 and, and said essentially that she believes that there is a division between performance art and entertainment and that yeah. there is something I've always believed for a very long time. I just wasn't sure if anybody else thought that, but mm. she, you know, she had approached with this idea of what if we did a project which brought together and highlighted the intersections of fine art and lowbrow art and essentially bringing together the two worlds of burlesque cabaret performance art and visual art and saying that they're essentially all the same and they're all on the same level. And that's how the push-pull project came to be. And we sort of use that title because it really references that, that tension between the two worlds and the two disciplines of pushing and pulling between what is real art or legitimate art and what isn't, who is allowed in certain spaces and who isn't. When performance art borrows or appropriates from entertainment or when it borrows from burlesque, it burlesque doesn't really get the credit that it deserves. And so mm. we really wanted to put together this project to really show that intersection and that bridge and also to bring together performance artists, visual artists, cabaret performers, strippers, sex workers, showgirls, people who have been creating on the on the edge and on the margins for years, people who have been in incredibly academic, um, highly intelligent in academic spaces, but bringing all these different people together to say that we're more or less all the same and we're, we're telling intersectional stories and creating intersectional art. It was also about giving access and opportunity to folks who don't always get invited into rooms and into spaces because they're not thought of as intelligent, because they're not thought of as people who are actually contributing to the larger culture, even though they are. And so the Pushpull Project is really about all of that. It's, it's about bringing in Black and POC artists into a larger space that says this is real art, this is fine art, and this art has value. And how can our listeners attend or be involved or support the Push and Pull? So we're about to launch the project starts in December and it is three showcases, five workshops and three, ooh, three speaking panels, I believe. And so we are going to be streaming the streaming and showing our workshops and our, our panels through Aluna Theater. And then we will be showing our showcases through Buddies in Bad Times Theater. We are going to be putting the, the times and the dates on both the websites and information sites for Buddies in Bad Times Theater and for Aluna Theater. So folks can always look up and see what event they want to attend virtually because this mm -hmm. was all meant to happen in real time. But mm -hmm. of course, none of that is now. And so folks, yeah, folks can check out the websites for both Aluna and Buddies in Bad Times as soon as we put the information up. Awesome. So we will update the show notes of this episode with those links when they become available too. So people listening can go and check that out. But you are also a playwright. You are also yes. working on your own 
theater piece. And it looks like uh, there is a also kind of a trilogy or a series of works emerging in that area. So would you be able to talk to us a little bit about your current work in progress, which is called Blood and Memory? Yes, I was a part of the playwright program with Obsidian Theater, uh, I want to say about two years ago, and I wrote a play called Blood and Memory. And I wrote that play in response to a play I had already written. I wrote a play called Daughters of Lilith, which Mm -hmm. I have performed a portion of at the Kaminos Festival of the Luna Theater. Mm -hmm. Um, And I self-produced it and showed that work at Buddies and Bad Times Theater as well. Um, so, okay. <laughs> it's a I lot. A bit, I know. So I get a little bit emotional, I guess, because it, it, it's such, I, it, I, it's such emotional and spiritual and visceral work. Mm-hmm. And it's probably one of the, um, some of the most revealing work I've ever done mm-hmm. because part of being a showgirl is you do get to hide behind a certain amount of glamour and, um, um, yeah. In this work, yeah, in, in this work, in this storytelling, I'm really revealing so much of myself. But so essentially, Daughters of Lilith, I wrote first, and it is a story of six women, six Black women who are sisters, um, but they have been estranged and disconnected. Each woman has encountered one or more than one heartbreak in her life. And they haven't spoken to each other in a while, but because of the particular heartbreaks that each of each of these women have experienced, they have decided to return home. Because what happens when you get your heart broken? You you go home, you go home to mother, yeah. or you go to a safe place. And so they go back to a forest and they start to talk about their grief and their rage and their pain and their heartbreak to each other and to themselves, because they're trying to remember their healing and their magic. Um, And each of the sisters is an archetype of Black womanhood, or at least how I felt Black womanhood is. And so I had sister fighter slash warrior. I had sister mother. I had sister uh, Jezebel, who is based off of my burlesque counterpart. There there are six of them that were um, divided out of me and Mm -hmm. represented the sort of six different archetypes of Black womanhood. And they sort of come together and speak about their heartbreak. And then they were calling out for their mother, who to me is Lilith, because again, I grew up in a very Christian household. It comes out. Yeah, (laughs) I can't help it. It keeps coming out. And so for those who don't know, in Judeo-Christianity, Lilith is the first wife of Adam, and she was exiled or kicked out of the story goes that she was kicked out anyway for refusing to let Adam lie on top of her during sex. That's how that's the basic story of of, <laughs> of Lilith essentially. And then she she essentially becomes a demon and a monster throughout Christianity and stories and mythology after that. Another version goes that she wasn't just kicked out because of um, not wanting to be sexually submissive, she was also kicked out because she she dared to call God by his name. And so mm-hmm. she was banished because of that. And then she essentially becomes a demon or some would say that she's the first witch. She becomes the first witch because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so because these Black women come home, to me, I've always seen Lilith as a witch. I've always imagined because of the way Black women are desired and objectified and wanted, but also mistrusted and held under deep suspicion. To mm-hmm. me, Lilith was just naturally always a Black woman. And so all six of these women are 
sisters, they're connected, they come home and they're trying to find their mother and they're trying to find their healing. So I wrote that, produced it, performed it. And then I realized there was more to the story. Um, so I wrote Blood and Memory. And because I'm just a weird person, I guess, and I'm a Scorpio and all these different things, yeah. I've written, uh, it turned that I realized halfway through this, this very long-winded project that I'm writing a trilogy, basically. Mm -hmm. And I realized that Blood and Memory is the prequel to Daughters of Lilith. So Blood and Memory is what happened before the sisters came right. back home to the forest with their heartbreak and their grief. And Blood and Memory is about Lilith in the Garden of Eden, and it's about Eve, Lilith and Eve having a conversation in the Garden of Eve of Eden. And mm. it's about the moment before Eve bites a fruit, and it's a conversation between, I've always imagined that Eve was also a Black woman, so it's a conversation between two Black women, and why did they make the choices that they make? Why do they do the things that they do? And that's mm the simplest way to explain what blood and memory is. And so I've been writing that on and off for a couple of years now while doing other work and projects. I've been working with Obsidian Theater, which I'm so grateful and thankful for. Um, and I'm going to be workshopping that with Obsidian in 2021. That's beautiful. And I feel like, yeah, Lilith, the story of Lilith is not as nearly as well known as Adam and Eve. You know, no, lots of people no, think it starts no. later. I'm really fascinated by difficult women and complicated women. I think probably anybody who knows me or even doesn't know me could see that based on the body of work that I have. <laughs> because I named my burlesque troupe Les Femmes Fatales, you know, and people have asked me, why would you name a burlesque troupe Femme Fatale? Like of all the things, but based on the genre, when you watch film noir, the Femme Fatale is, is a difficult woman. She's a mm. woman who weaponizes her femininity and her sexuality. And so she must be a bad woman. She couldn't possibly be a good woman, right? Mm -hmm. She's a woman who wears red lipstick, all of those things. And when you watch those, that, that particular genre and you watch that archetype, that character, the femme fatale, at the end of the film, she usually dies. The femme fatale character either dies or she repents. And it turns out she was never really a bad girl. She was always a good girl. And we had misunderstood. I named the troupe that for Black women and women of color to sort of reclaim that and take that term back and suggest that what if what if the femme fatale isn't bad or good what if she's a combination of both what if she doesn't die what if she survives and thrives what if she's just difficult and complicated but she's not a bad woman or if she is difficult what's so bad about that so the same theme really runs throughout the plays that i write as a playwright i'm interested in complicated women or Maybe I'm just interested in allowing women to have their complicatedness, you know, and, and not apologize for it. Maybe I'm really obsessed with that. I, I think I want, I want space for women to be all of those things, to be strong, to be soft, to be sexual, to be prudish. Um, I, want, I want space for women to be um, contradictory and complicated and layered, to be you know, a warrior in her life, but then also be really scared of spiders and <laughs> all of these different things. Because I think women are all of those things. I think woman, womanhood and womanhood is a complicated landscape that's full of nuance and complexity and beauty and pain mm -hmm. and grief. And so I just want to create stories in whatever format that might be that allows for that, that allows for us to be vulnerable 
particularly Black women and women of color and queer women, where we get to be sensitive, we get to be tender. I say tender all the time. And I, I, want, I had a friend say to me once, I have never met anyone who says tender. She, she would ask me, how are you feeling today? And I said, I'm feeling a little tender. She's like, what, is, what does that even mean? Who says tender? Um, but I think a lot of people are tender and particularly Black women and women of color. And so in my working life, in my personal life, I'm really interested in how do we create space for that? How do we create space for vulnerability, for tenderness, for softness, for sensitivity? How do we create space for hardness and yeah. difficultness and, and um, survivorship and thriving, thriving, healing, all of it? I just want to know what it would look like to be a whole woman. And the word tender really does imply survivorship too, to me, because when yes. I hear it, it's like, I am holding a lot of sensation and I'm still showing up and I'm still being absolutely, open to more. Absolutely. Yeah. The the writer, Sandra Sisanos, she, she wrote The House on Mango Street. I just like a lot of her stuff and I like her work. And there's a quote for her from her where she, which I go back to sometimes where she says, I just, you know, if I, if I am going to be a witch, then so be it. And I, I, start, I took to eating all the dark black things to make me hard and strong. I'm not doing the quote justice, but she no, said that. I and remember it, that really, yeah. yeah, and it really yeah. stuck with me. When I was a young woman, when I was, I was a teenager, I read a book called, I think it's called Eva Luna or, or Eva Luna. It's by Isabella, Isabel Alande. And she's an incredible writer as well. And that book has found impact on me. And there's a line in it where the young woman says, I stopped comparing myself to the great beauties of movies and magazines. I decided I was beautiful simply because I wanted to be. And I thought, oh my God, incredible. Um, you know, Clarissa Pinkola Estes, she wrote Women Who Run With The Wolves. I'm a huge fan of that book. Mm. Uh, Toni Morrison. Toni Morrison writes about complicated and interested and tender women all the time. And so I think that there have been women writers who have been writing about tender people for a long time, questioning women, willful women, unruly women. I'm a part of that tradition. I want to carry on that tradition. Yes. I like the word tenderness because of exactly what you just said. I like the idea of being soft and strong at the same time. I like the idea of being tender, but showing up anyway. Mm. I think that's what really being brave looks like. You know, I mm -hmm. think that it's just, it's a person who is tender, but continues. It's mm -hmm. a person who doesn't have all the answers, but they're, they show up, they show up to work, they show up to life, they show up to resistance and, and, um, and revolutions. And they show up in their relationships that they have with the, themselves and with their partners and their lovers and their family and their friends. It's a person who's terrified, terrified of life, but they show up anyway. I think that that, that is what tenderness is. And, I think it's really beautiful. And I suppose I talk about tenderness so much because I just want to make sure that when we talk about tenderness or when we talk about softness or sweetness, or again, being sensitive that the people who are, who are tender and soft and sweet are black women and women of color. Because, because generally speaking, when you, when you say particular words, I'm not the image that shows up. You know what I mean? And, and mm -hmm. black women and women of color are not the image that shows up when you say tender. And I think that we are. I feel really tender right now with this conversation. 
So before we wrap up, we have a question from our previous guest, Puerto Rican comedian and illustrator and astrologer, Mela Pavon. What is your sun sign and what traits do you share with it? Oh my goodness. You already mentioned this. You dropped yes. it earlier, yeah. but. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a Scorpio um, and I'm probably um, too Scorpionic, I guess. Um, I am very intense, deeply loyal, slightly too serious, you know, have a hard shell, but a very soft center. I would say I, I'm, I'm definitely the stereotypical qualities of a Scorpio for sure. Okay, so you embrace that about yourself. I mean, like you accept those things. I accept those things. I probably could learn to be a little, little le more lighthearted for sure. <laughs> I don't want to be like Heathcliff, you know, like just wandering the moors, scowling <laughs> and brooding, and and looking at my lover like very intensely, like you know. So I, I think that's probably why I still like cartoons so much because I'm like, okay, let's let's lighten up a little bit. But but, yeah. I'm, but I'm also okay with being who I am, and and I think that that's I'm okay with being a Scorpio. Lots of people like forget that Scorpios are water signs and yes. you definitely probably already know this but one of my favorite images when I think of a Scorpio is the sun being held deep underwater oh that's so beautiful so it boils yeah and it's dark but it lights it yeah yeah someone had posted they were like this is what Scorpios look like and it was the ocean but there was fire on top of it <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah I guess that's that's about right. Apparently Scorpios are one of the weirdest signs in terms of the water signs because scorpions like live in the desert or very dry mm. areas, but, but it's a water sign. So yeah. a contradiction in and of ourselves, but yeah, that's a good question. Okay. Well, this podcast is called Merendiando, which means snack time, basically. So Dainty, what is a merienda or a snack that you've been enjoying lately and that you'd like to share with us? This snack could be like a food, but it could also be a song, a book, article, view from your window, whatever is bringing you joy. Oh, wow. That's such a beautiful, sumptuous question. I am someone who loves a good cup of coffee. I, I just, I, you know, I get such comfort from that. So I would say coffee and then after my my one morning cup of coffee, multiple cups of tea throughout the day. <laughs> There's nothing that can't be solved by a good cup of tea or strong coffee. So yeah. that always gives me a daily dose of joy. I'm snuggling my cat, whether she wants to be snuggled or not. She's a little black cat and her name is Eartha Kitten. And then this is so silly, but I love to get a giant bowl of trail mix, believe it or not. <laughs> And then yeah. a giant cup of tea and then just, mm. just eat trail mix and drink tea and then zone out on, <laughs> on silly television. Nothing makes me feel better. It's just, it's, it's, it makes me feel good and I don't have to think about anything, but it's somehow nourishing my body and my spirit. It's so simple. And then every once in a while to treat myself, I like to get some dark chocolate, sea salt, dark mm. chocolate. Oh, mm -hmm. no. Those are my... <laughs> joyful, sensual things, and they make me feel really good. So that's how we recommend when you listen to this podcast, get a gigantic bowl of trail mix and a <laughs> cup of tea. <laughs> that's Trail mix is not very glamorous, but I love it. I love it. It's just, I love it too. It just makes me, it's very simple and it makes me feel really good. My brother makes fun of me for it all the time. He's like, what are you, a bird? Why are you doing this? <laughs> 
eat real food. But it it's is just real a, food. It is real food. Thank you. Thank you yeah. for validating me. There's yeah. something about it. It's just so simple and it just brings me such joy. It's it's not fancy at all, but I just love it so much. I'm just like reflecting on what you just said this entire hour. So yeah, that's your influence. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, I suppose I probably maybe care slightly too much about some of these topics, but they have always meant a lot to me. I think that I'm, you know, I'm a little black girl who grew up in a working class, mainly white neighborhood, finding ways to find reflection and beauty and a sense of myself and my personhood has always been important to me. And I think I'm, it, it's become so integral to my work because I'm really hoping that I can help someone else find that sense of themselves too. It's so necessary. I think that this world is incredibly hard. Um, but being able to, to find beauty in yourself and uh, find beauty around you um, being able to love yourself and think that you are a magnificent work of art is maybe one of the most powerful acts of self-love that you can do for yourself. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to be you. And I, I'm really interested in, in suggesting that to people over and over and over again until it becomes true for them and until it becomes true for me too, because we still live in a world that doesn't value us. So we have to value ourselves. Thank you so much, Dainty, for being here. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for having me. We are speaking to you from the shores of this beautiful Zaga Igan, known to some as Lake Ontario, in Toronto, or Dugarondo. This is the ancestral territory of the Haudenosaunee, or Longhouse Confederacy, the Anishinaabek Nation, the Wendat, and the Mississaugas of the Credit. This land is covered by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum and Treaty 13 also known as the Toronto Purchase. At Aluna, we remember that people can begin to heal when they are hurt. We are committed to artful participation in disagreements. We are committed to unsettling ourselves towards connection, respect, and justice for all people who now live in this city, which has been a meeting place since time immemorial. Radio Aluna Theatre is produced by Aluna Theatre, with support from the Toronto Arts Council, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, the Department of Canadian Heritage, and the Metcalfe Foundation. Aluna Theatre is Beatriz Pisano and Trevor Shellness with Sue Ballant. Radio Aluna Theatre is produced by Monica Garrido and Camila Diaz Varela. For more about Aluna Theatre, visit us at alunatheatre.ca, follow at Aluna Theatre on Twitter or Instagram, or like us on Facebook. Miigwech and Nyawangoa.